Hey there, everybody, and happy anniversary. This is Jeannie Faulkner, and you are listening to the 52nd episode of Common Sense Pregnancy and Parenting, the podcast. We launched one year ago, and damn, we have talked about a whole lot of things, and we've heard from a whole lot of people. Our audience is really growing fast, and there are just thousands and thousands of you out there who are listening in, asking questions, and really keeping this global conversation going. Thank you. This first year has been a blast, and it's been a huge learning opportunity, and I appreciate you guys learning with me. Kind of wonder what next year will be like. And so, you know, during this first year... You heard from all kinds of people that I'm really excited about in this big, big, expansive conversation about pregnancy, parenthood, feminism, motherhood, you know, all of that parenting. But this next year, I'm kind of hoping you guys will help guide the conversation. What do you want to talk about? What do you want to bring to the conversation? What perspectives do you want to hear from? And what issues do you want me to cover? Um, you know. Who do you want me to get on the line? Email me, tweet me, and let's keep it going, shall we? Now, to celebrate my one-year anniversary, I'm going to do a little bit of a giveaway. Um, any of you who email me at gene at genefaulkner.com and put happy anniversary in the subject line, give me your name and address, and I'm going to draw names, and one of you, I will mail you a free copy of the book. Pretty good, huh? Common sense pregnancy coming your way. Um, you know, and I also want to say thank you to all of you who are picking up copies of my book at the bookstores all over the place. Um, Common sense pregnancy is a labor of love for me, and I'm really, really glad that people are picking it up and reading it and sharing it and giving it as gifts. I got, I've gotten a couple of emails this week from people who had a few questions and bought the book. And they found their answers in it. I love hearing that. Um, Let's see. I also got a few more emails this week about polyhydramnios. That's when you're measuring um, that you have a lot of amniotic fluid. And rather than re-answering that question here today, I'm going to ask you guys to refer back to episode 7. Um where one of my midwife friends answers all kinds of questions about polyhydramnios and amniotic fluid. Uh, Let's see. I also got an email this week from a woman named Nyad. I'm sorry if I'm pronouncing that incorrectly. I'm not sure where Nyad lives, but from the way that she writes, I'm pretty sure it isn't the United States. Um, Remember a couple weeks ago when I talked with Chrisula Weiniger and she mentioned that A lot of developing countries are modeling their um, maternal health and obstetric care along the same lines as United States obstetric care. And in many cases, it's resulting in too many C-sections being performed unnecessarily. Well, here's what Nyad wants to know. She writes, Hi, Jean. I read your writing in Fit Pregnancy, which was giving birth before your due date. That's an article I wrote a while back. I'm pregnant and I'm on 37th weeks. My doctor told me to wait till 31st October as yesterday was my delivery date. 
But as my baby movement is okay, and I'm also doing okay, she wants to see what happens. My question to you is, what can I do for giving a natural birth? As in our country nowadays, C-section has become very common. What can I do for a natural delivery, like any exercise or walking or something else? It would be really nice of you if you mail me back. Thank you in advance. <laughs> I like that. I like that a lot. So it's a, l- it's a little unclear exactly what's going on here, but it sounds like um, maybe she was scheduled for an, an induction on the 31st, even though she's only 37 weeks along. Uh, but then her doctor said, you know, let's wait a while. Let's see what happens. Everybody looks okay. Why don't we go closer to your due date? And so Nyad is wondering, well, you know, what are, I, I want to make this happen naturally because, um, you know, if I go too far, there's a good chance I'm going to get a C-section. Um, so I get that. I get that email a lot from women who are at or near their due dates who just want this done. So... Um, I hear enough about it that I actually wrote, wrote a section of my book, Common Sense Pregnancy. haven't read from the book for a while, so today I thought I would go ahead and read this section, and hopefully it'll answer Nyad's question, and maybe questions for a bunch of you too. Um, it's in the chapter called When the End is in Sight, and the section is called How to Get the Show on the Road, What Works and What Doesn't for Starting Labor Naturally. Most women won't need medical induction and shouldn't want one unless they have a medical reason. But they also don't necessarily want to be pregnant forever. So what about natural techniques? You know, those time-honored methods that women have shared for generations. There are lots of myths and legends and just as many opinions about which of these natural techniques will and won't get labor started. If you're at or past your due date and you really can't stand being pregnant one more day, you can give these DIY at-home tips a try. They're not guaranteed to work, but if they don't kickstart your labor, they'll at least keep you busy while you're waiting. Before we begin, though, let me give you a heads up. These techniques span a range from stuff that really works, excuse me, stuff that rarely works, to things that are kind of gross, to activities that may or may not be fun, to things that are downright unappealing. The bottom line is, if your body isn't ready for labor, nothing you do is likely to change that. If it's teetering on the edge of labor, though, and just needs something to push it over, well then, you might get lucky. So here they are. Food. Spicy food, Indian food, arugula, pizza, a big meal, Mexican food, and eggplant parmesan are all said to induce labor. Does it work? Maybe yes, maybe no, maybe indigestion, maybe intestinal cramps. Why not give it a try? Castor oil. Drinking castor oil acts as a powerful intestinal stimulant that then triggers the uterus to contract too. Does it work? A study conducted back in 2000 divided 103 pregnant women who were between 40 and 42 weeks gestation into two groups. One group of 52 women received about four tablespoons or 60 milliliters of castor oil orally, and the other 48 women received nothing. 30 women in the castor oil group started labor within 24 hours, compared to only two in the nothing group. A similar study was done in 2006 with similar results. About 54% of women who used castor oil 
went into labor within 24 hours. It seems to work at least half the time. However, if it does work, then in addition to being in labor and experiencing uterine contractions, you may also experience massive intestinal cramps and possibly oily diarrhea. Herbal supplements. Evening primrose oil, black cohosh, and red raspberry leaves are the most commonly recommended herbs by midwives and naturopaths for starting labor. They're sometimes used in combination and sometimes alone. Their exact action isn't clear, but they may work as a cervical ripening agent, which gets the cervix ready to dilate. And they may stimulate contractions. Does it work? There aren't any clinical studies to support their effectiveness, but many midwives and women report they're safe and effective. Are they safe to use during pregnancy? There are varying opinions, probably because there aren't many studies done on their use and effects. Acupuncture. In traditional Chinese medicine, placing small sterile needles on several specific points on the body, and this must be done by a trained, licensed, professional acupuncturist. It's intended to stimulate the flow of energy, or qi, throughout the body. When placed in certain points, this may stimulate release of prostaglandins and oxytocin, which can stimulate labor. Does it work? There aren't enough clinical studies to say for sure, but many, many women and acupuncturists claim it does. Women in many Eastern cultures use acupuncture for all kinds of medical needs, including induction of labor and pain relief, and they find that it works well. There really aren't any negative side effects, so why not give this a try? Nipple stimulation. Tweaking, rolling, sucking, pumping with a breast pump, massaging, or rubbing the nipples with a washcloth causes a natural release of oxytocin that often leads to contractions. When nipples are stimulated during pregnancy, many women notice mild contractions, but they aren't strong enough or regular enough to start labor. Does it work? When a woman is already at or past her due date, nipple stimulation may be effective for starting labor. Generally, however, it causes contractions only while the nipples are being stimulated, and they subside quickly after stimulation is discontinued. An analysis of six medical trials compared results of breast stimulation with no intervention. Within 72 hours, 93% of women in the nipple stimulation group were in labor compared to 62.7% of the no nipple stimulation group. This success rate may be related in part because partners often have sex after nipple stimulation, which may cause labor to start. Side note, a not too surprising number of partners are more than happy to give this technique a try, especially if it's followed up by sex. Sex. Not just any kind of sex, it has to include vaginal penetration that results in the man ejaculating inside the vagina. This may cause a release of prostaglandin hormones that may stimulate labor. Prostaglandins are present in both semen and cervical mucus, and they may be enough to get the ball rolling. Intercourse, like nipple stimulation, should be strictly an at-home activity. Yes, I have walked into patient rooms where couples were trying this DIY approach in the hospital. Seriously, folks, if you're in the hospital, just don't. Does it work? Lots of women from many generations say it does. As for official studies, research published in the journal 
Obstetrics and Gynecology, says that having frequent sex close to your due date can reduce the need for induction. Another study, however, says it doesn't work, and in fact, it could delay labor. Another study says sex alone won't do it, but nipple stimulation during sex might. As long as you're past your due date and have no medical reasons why you shouldn't have sex, having sex to start labor is certainly worth a try. There, that is probably too much information for a lot of you. Um, <clears throat> now that we've answered Nyad's question, I hope we've helped. Um, I think that I think that I want to get our guest on the line. Um, Suzanne Berman uh, is somebody that I've known for a while through a number, a couple of avenues, and she has worked in development and humanitarian aid for a long, long time now. Now she's a brand new mother, and we're going to talk about all of that. So um, let's just get Suzanne on the line. Hey, this is Suzanne. Hi, Suzanne. It's Jeannie. How are you? Hi, Jeannie. I'm doing well. How are you? I'm doing great. So, Suzanne, before we get into the good stuff of our conversation today, just tell me where you are. You're in D.C.? I am. I'm just outside of D.C. in uh, a little neighborhood called Tacoma Park in Maryland, Um, but I can almost see D.C. from my window. (laughs) Is that anything like Alaska from your porch? I think it's a little like that. Yeah, they um, they call it the uh, the People's Republic of Tacoma Park because it's um, a little bit of a sort of hippie neighborhood or the Berkeley of the East. So okay. it's kind of a fun little place to be. I, I think I'd fit right in. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's fun. Um, so we I'm like in it. Portland. So you know, we take hippie and then some. <laughs> yes, I, so I've heard. <laughs> yeah. Well, Suzanne, what I want to do is I want to start off with just reading your bio, which I always do, and okay. then we'll start talking. Suzanne, Suzanne Berman is a new mom and senior policy advisor to Child Fund International, a nonprofit organization that focuses on child protection and development in 27 countries. She lives just outside of Washington, D.C. with her husband, Ken, and da-da-da... One month old son, Jonah. Woo! I bet right now, <laughs> one month old son is the highlight of your bio. I think so. I hear him screaming in the background, so he's you know making himself known. Oh, you guys just did the baby handoff, right? Your husband just came in the door and you handed Jonah to him. Yes. Um, so that's going okay. I think. Um, yes, uh, it's it's been really nice to have a supportive partner in the process, but, um, you know, sometimes he wants mom. So the handoff goes sometimes smoothly and sometimes a little less so. Yeah, I can relate. I I remember those first weeks so vividly, especially with my first daughter where, you know, I'd been taking care of her all day and my husband would get home at five 30 and I would be watching for him to walk down the driveway and he'd walk in, I'd hand him the baby and I'd walk out and just take a little time to <laughs> reclaim. And then of course the baby would fuss just a little bit and they'd then they'd hit their stride and they did just fine. It's just the yeah. handoff. You know, Definitely. the handoff. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Well, Suzanne, now that I've read your bio, I want to ask you the first hard question, which is this. Who are you and what do you do? 
Okay, um, I'll start. I'm from DC, so we have the uh, stereotype of talking about what we do too much. So I'll go ahead and follow that stereotype and talk about that first because it's easier. Um, so I am currently the senior policy advisor at Child Fund International, and essentially what I do there is help the organization figure out its um, relationship with the U.S. government and figuring out how we can encourage the U.S. government to have good policies on international development um, on a wide range of issues, but we focus most intently on child protection, so um, looking into issues of abuse, neglect, exploitation, and violence against children and trying to prevent that and improve responses to those issues. Um, we also do some work in maternal health and early childhood development. So just um, engaging in different policies and pieces of legislation or encouraging policies to come into play if there aren't any right now on those issues. And so it's been really fun. I've been there about a year. Before that, I worked for other organizations like CARE and Bread for the World, doing somewhat similar work on U.S. policy on international development issues. Um, and it's, it's been really fun and really challenging. And right now, I'm on maternity leave, obviously, but um, the folks that are filling in for me are working on transition strategies for the new administration, whoever that might be. And, um, and we're really hoping that we'll make some headway on issues of child protection in the next year. So that's really fun. Um, as far as who I am, I'm, let's see, uh, someone who probably tries to be more laid back than I actually am, probably more neurotic than I'd like to admit. Um, I have really enjoy living and working in and around D.C. and kind of being part of that policy environment. And so I guess I'm a little bit of a nerd. Um, and I grew up in Virginia Beach, Virginia, like love the ocean and the coast and, and um, also love travel and trying to get out as much as I can. And so now that I have a little one, I'm a little nervous as to how that piece of my life will continue or not. Yeah. Um, and otherwise, you know, I think I you know, just try to be a good person and a good friend and have as much fun as I can. Oh, that's pretty good. Those are good aspirations and, and a pretty good self-definition, I'd say. I, I, <laughs> excuse me. I'm a little bit froggy in the voice today. I apologize to everybody. I particularly like the nerd, the nerd designation because I relate so well. And uh, <clears throat> again, sorry about the frog. So... Part of the reason I wanted to have you on the podcast is because um, you have the, you know, you have the policy and the development and the nonprofit piece of the whole motherhood parenthood um, puzzle, but then you also have this really, really fresh, brand new perspective as a new mother. And um, I saw that you posted something on Facebook, which is, of course, how all of us ever hear anything about anybody anymore um and i don't remember exactly what you said but i bet you do about never assume that i've brushed my teeth right <laughs> yeah that's post? pretty much it what did you post something i think like something about never assume i've brushed my teeth motherhood isn't um it takes nine hours to take a shower and to get in the shower um and then never assume that i've brushed my teeth <laughs> so true so true and yeah and yet at the end of the day, do you have a feeling of accomplishment? I think so. I mean, I think just um, e e keeping a kid alive is an accomplishment, um, you know, especially when you don't have any whole lot of previous experience of doing that. So, you know, it is exciting. I think it's a little um, 
the gratification might be a little delayed right now just because Jonah's only a month old. So, um, you know, there is not as much interaction as there will be later. And, you know, there's no smiles yet. It's just, you know, keeping them from screaming is an accomplishment or getting them to quiet down. But I think, you know, just figuring out the baby and and how to care for him and how to make coffee with one hand. um, I think that that's a sense of accomplishment. So every time I figure out how to do a normal task um, while taking care of him, I think I feel pretty good about myself. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, I remember it really well. And you know what, mm-hmm. you, you get the, you know, baby on, baby in one arm, coffee pot in the other hand, you get those tricks down and then right. you figure that that's just going to be hardwired and then you get the next kid and they're going to do something different about it. They're going to want to only be <laughs> held on the right side. So you have to hold the coffee pot in your left side. There's always something. There's always something. It's just keeps us yeah. smart. Keeps us smart. <laughs> Yeah, I I have a whole new respect for parents of either multiple births or just multiple children because I think it's hard enough to keep your sanity um, with one and then just having to deal with more than one. I know it's just got to be a challenge. I don't know. I think number one is the hardest. After that, you can (laughs) definitely. I don't know that. Yeah, I've got several, um, as you you Mm -hmm. probably remember. And. Going from one to two was hard, but it wasn't twice as hard. You know, it was that's, that's like one and a quarter as hard as having one child. <laughs> you know, and that's gotcha. just because there were you, you had to juggle. There were more logistics and strategies. But I thought that I, I think that having the first child is kind of shocking. And and you know, I keep hearing from women who say some version of the phrase, nobody ever told me that, dot, 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 fill in mm-hmm. the blank. And I keep thinking about it. <clears throat> and I wonder, you know, how many things are there about labor and birth and, you know, the, the new fresh parenting stage that people still don't talk about? And, and why? Is it because they can't articulate it or, or what? And so now I kind of want to mm-hmm. incorporate that question into my podcast whenever I can. And I'm going to make you my guinea mm-hmm. pig. What is okay. the thing that nobody ever told you about your birth or this first month that you want other mothers to know about? Sure. It's a great question. And I think I am pretty lucky and then I have a lot of friends with young children. And then also um, of my four closest girlfriends in college, um, I being one of them, so four total, we have all had babies in the last six months. Um, so I've had kind of a very, very close in time proximity experience to people who I'm very close to and have sort of shockingly few boundaries with. Um, so I did, did come into it with a lot of really graphic information. Um, but I think the one thing that, (laughs) yes. Um, but I think the, the thing that surprised me the most, and I do think people tell you things, but then when it actually and the reality of it is different than even what you've heard. Like, you know, you're going to be up all the time and, you know, you know that the baby is going to be really dependent on you. Um, but then the reality of that is just so much more intense than I think you're expecting. Um, so that was part of it. But I think the specific thing that was most shocking was just how long nursing takes. And that may just be my baby who just kind of likes to camp out. Um, but I, you know, I knew I'd be getting up frequently and I knew I'd be nursing frequently. And that was something that I needed to be committed to because 
you know, it's a choice I was making and it is difficult. Um, but I didn't expect it to be almost 20 hours of my day or at least feel like that. Um, and just, you know, having, a having to nurse for more than an hour, um, at 4am, which is yeah. uncomfortable. Um, and so I think that was the most shocking thing. And I've talked to a couple of, of these close girlfriends who've had babies recently and some of them have obviously different experiences, but that was something that they, they were not really prepared for either. Um, so I think that that was the biggest surprise. I think you're right about that. I remember thinking, being mentally prepared for the idea of being woken up multiple times, but not necessarily right. staying up multiple times. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And, and I also think, you know, the first couple of days we brought Jonah home, again, you know, was prepared for it to be awful and, you know, an endurance test, but um, he did not want to be put down and still really prefers to be laying on someone, which I totally respect. Um, but you know, I, I thought I'd be woken up maybe every hour, but I'd be able to put him down in a bassinet and lay down for a few minutes. And that just didn't happen the first few days. We've gotten better, um, but that was just a bit of a, of a shocking experience. Yeah, it's, it's abrupt, isn't it? <laughs> mm-hmm. yeah. yeah. And, you know, you're healing and you've been through a lot and you're up, you know, in the hospital. So I think that was also uh, just, just worse than I expected. Yeah, yeah. And yeah, and do you think that it's that you didn't, do you think that you didn't know about that element or is it just, we just can't articulate the feeling? You can't really get it until yeah, you I mean, Yeah, I mean, I think no one told me you may not be able to put him down or nobody told me nursing could take more than an hour every time. And if they're nursing every three hours, that means, you know, you have maybe an hour or so free. Um, but so I feel like I didn't get that specific piece of information and maybe um, folks hadn't had that experience to share with me. But then I think just the, the generalities of how intense it is, you just can't know and articulate. And, and I think just the, the experience is, is so different, even if you think you have the appropriate expectation. Yeah. I also think that it kind of I think, cracks open um, feelings and experiences and emotions that you just don't have prior to living it. You know, so maybe, yeah, that might be a case, definitely. Yeah, we don't have the vocabulary for it to describe that feeling. But once you describe it to somebody who is a parent, then they get it. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I know that feeling. I know that middle of the night mm-hmm. feeling. Yeah. 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 Wow. There are going to be listeners out there who are saying, I still don't get it. <laughs> and then <laughs> no, a couple it's of they'll join us. And I, you know, I was, I was lucky in that a few of my friends, uh, one friend in particular, um, who had a baby, and then I went to see her shortly thereafter. This was a few years ago, and she said, "Okay, before now that you're not pregnant, I can tell you all the terrible things that you know pregnancy and childbirth have in store for you." So because it's you know, once you're pregnant, nobody wants to hear it. But let me tell you all, like, list out all of the, you know, really graphic details about, about the experience. And so I feel like for the physical stuff, I was a little more prepared um, than just, you know, the endurance test of, like, the actual baby. And what is happening to my body, I think people don't warn me about. Um, but, you know, dealing with, with him, and, of course, that's a huge variable because every baby is different. Yeah, because you don't know who he's going to be. You can't really prepare for, right. you know, a life partner that you don't know. <laughs> right. Or didn't so pick that do. specific one. Yeah. yeah. Right. There's only so much you can do. You can get the onesies and the diapers and the crib and the nursing pads. 
but there's an awful lot about what you have to know to raise your child that you don't get to know until you meet them. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. I was, I was yeah, having yeah. a conversation last week with Chrisula Weiniger from Global Moms Challenge about mm-hmm. um, how she and I each have um, four and five kids. I have three daughters, a son, and a niece, and she has two daughters and two sons. And we were talking about how with our first babies, so much of our experience was wrapped up in kind of our self-evaluation. Like, oh, he's doing that because I did this. Or he is that way because of something that I'm doing. It, it, I think with the first baby, it, it's just natural that you, you feel like however he turns out, it's really because of you and your abilities and your mm-hmm. parenting. And then you have the second one, and you get this entirely different human being. And even still, you might think, okay, that's a different kid, but no, seriously, this has got to be, I got to be the one to blame here. But then when you have three mm-hmm. or four, <laughs> and you look at these kids, and it's all, it's just a crapshoot of who you get. They're all entirely different people. They all come from the same recipe. You're using the basic, you know, floor plan to raise these kids and they're entirely it's just there's nothing it's random it's random Mm -hmm. right and then it's fun to watch it is fun yeah it's fun yeah so I wanted to talk to you about you know sort of the realities of being a new mom versus what you'd anticipated and we've talked a Mm -hmm. little bit about that already um what do what do you what is it like for you to kind of emerge as a as a person you weren't before? You know, you, you mm-hmm. planned on becoming a mom, and now you are. And mm-hmm. what's different about it than what you'd anticipated? Well, I think, um, you know, I, people always say, you know, you're, you become a different person when you become a mom, and um, your whole life changes and everything changes. And to be honest, that made me a little nervous. Um, I mean, of course your whole life changes and you have to, you know, have this new person in your life that you're taking care of. It means the world to you. But I was really scared about, you know, myself changing. And I thought, well, you know, I certainly have tons of flaws, but I kind of like who I am. And I don't, I don't know what, what people meant by you become different. Um, and so I, I had that concern, I guess I'll say. I don't know if there's an expectation, but definitely a concern. And I, I know I'm only a month in and I'm going to learn so much and things are going to change so much. But I think one thing that's been comforting is that I still feel like myself. Um, and I think that that's been really good. And I've had, we've had lots of guests come over and my friends have been really great and really supportive and family as well. And so, um, being able to see them and I feel like I can still interact with them in somewhat the same way. I mean, it's a little different when there's a kid clinging to you and you're trying to take care of him. And that's obviously a priority. It makes it hard to have a conversation, but, um, you know, still have kind of maintained my sense of humor, still curse a lot, which I guess I'm going to have to start editing out, um, <laughs> as soon as, as Jenna gets a little bit earlier, but <laughs> earlier and older, but, um, you know, I think I still feel like me, even though a really tired version of me. And then I think, it is really cool to, to learn that that version of you can also multitask in a way that you didn't know and um, just sort of be in tune to somebody else's needs. But um, I just was afraid I'd become, I guess, some sort of mom bot kind of situation. And mm-hmm. I know it's, I still could change, but 
um, that's been that's been a really good thing, um, I think, for me. It's just still feeling like the person I used to be. It's not gonna uh, and then as far it's not Sorry? gonna change. It's gonna be you the whole okay. the whole time. It's gonna be you. Okay. I think it's good. Yeah. It's sort of like being, you know you in an entirely different role or job or mm-hmm. country or something. It's still you. Mm-hmm. It's just right. you have this entirely different identity and role and all of that. But not identity like mm-hmm. this is who I am identity like job title or relationship mm-hmm. status or you know that kind of identity mm-hmm. yeah yeah sure that's a good way to put it that sounds a lot less intimidating than i feel like the way some other people have put it in the past yeah the mom bots <laughs> yeah yeah i don't know so i mean it's, you know there are those moments where you feel like you're just a cow or a food source or you know a, um something like that and it's you know, you do feel a little different when you haven't had a chance to get dressed or, you know, brush your teeth, as we talked about earlier. But, yeah. um, you know, I feel like I'm still me in the way I complain about those things. The glamour is low. The glamour is very low. Mm. <laughs> yes, that's true. Yeah, yeah. So I want to talk about your work. I want to talk about the okay. work that you do in the world. Now, you and I met, mm, I don't know, a while, while back now through care. When, mm-hmm. at, right. you know, conferences and things like that. Um, but you've gone on to do other things. So I, I want to know what you're doing. What are you doing, Suzanne? Sure. Yeah. So um, I took a break from the nonprofit world for a few years and uh, worked in consulting and, and doing some strategy work for the U.S. government through, um, through a consulting firm. And then um, just a year ago, got this great opportunity to come back to international development, which I was really excited to do. And so now I'm working with Child Fund, and they're really growing their work and advocacy, not only in the U.S., but also in the countries where we work, and working with our colleagues there to advocate with their own governments about policies, um, mostly related to child protection, but then anything that's, you know, very broad umbrella of different issues, um, which could include things like trafficking or um, bullying or domestic violence or, um, you know, gun violence, those kinds of things. So um, working on various issues to try to figure out what interventions are most effective and preventing and responding to those issues and then um, and then making sure that there are policies in place and that they're being implemented appropriately, which is always a challenge. So, you know, it's been, it's been a really fun experience. I've gotten to travel a little bit and see some of our work um, in, in Honduras, which has, um, you know, obviously a lot of gang violence issues, a lot of issues with um, immigration out of Central America, um, and then have also um, worked with colleagues in our offices in Panama and in, in Thailand. And so that's been, been really fun. Um, and as I mentioned earlier, we're working now to figure out you know, how we can guide the U.S. government in strategies on child protection, because that's been something that has been siloed um, into different particular issues like the trafficking folks or and the people who are interested in that and combating that um, or and trying to make a comprehensive U.S. policy that deals with these issues in a way that makes the most sense and in, in ways that we found to be effective. Um, so it's a, an exciting time and we're interested to see, of course, what happens with the elections so that we can know who we're working with and um, how we can make this a priority for the folks coming into power next. Um, and so that's 
kind of what I do. I don't know if I can, I don't know if that made a whole lot of sense. No, I get it because I, I kind of understand the lingo. And I think that those mm -hmm. um, who are listening who don't understand it, what they're going to zero in on is child services, trafficking, mm -hmm. violence. And that is really, really gut-wrenching work. That's hard. Yeah. Yeah. That's yeah. Really I, mean, I mean, I think, you know, from I get to be a little bit removed from, from the, you know, hands-on work with, with children. That's, you know, more in our national offices. But, um, you know, the looking at the policy side of it and, you know, the, the stories that we hear from, um, from our teams working in the field and then also um, just looking at the statistics. I mean, I think it's, it's something like half the world's children have been victims of violence. I mean, it's really quite staggering. And then you think about how that affects their brain and, you know, science has shown that it impedes brain development. And then, of course, victims of violence are more likely to be perpetrators of violence later on. It's, you know, it's just a really heartbreaking cycle that um, it would be nice to stop. So do the policies that you're helping develop and the statistics that you're citing reflect um, the United States policy and statistics as well as international, or is it primarily um, focused in international regions? Yeah, um, well, Child Fund does work in the U.S., and most of our work is international, and so um, the statistics, the, the one billion statistic, I think that's worldwide, so that would include the U.S., and I believe that's the CDC uh, statistic, but um, and so most of our work is international, but then we do have some really great programs on the border of Texas and then also in Jackson, Mississippi, where we're um, working with communities of youth to, um, in Jackson, Mississippi specifically, um, to identify issues in their community and then work uh, mainly through their schools, but through kind of civic participation to um, figure out how they can identify issues that are affecting them and then also start to become change agents. And so that's been really interesting. So. The advocacy work that we've done so far, again, it's new for child funds, so we're hoping to broaden it. Um, but so far, we've worked on the international, but we may be getting more into the domestic later on. Got it. Got it. I have um, a friend who works in, she's an attorney, um, and she works in child protective services and um, mm -hmm. representing the children in really, really dire circumstances and she'd done mm -hmm. this for quite a few years was really 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 committed in her job and then she adopted a baby and her experience became both harder and richer because she mm -hmm. had a child and she understood the experience on this really different level and I don't really have a question about that it's just that you know mm -hmm. two women I know this year who work in really badass child protection jobs have babies and I'm, I'm curious mm -hmm. about how that colors your perspective about the work yeah I mean I think you know it's, it's kind of like the experience of motherhood in general I mean you can you can hear these statistics and you know they're terrible but then when you have a child and you think about these things happening to your child um, then it's you know it's just a whole other it affects you on a whole other emotional level I think um, and just you know, and of course, I'm very lucky in that I have a strong support system and a good job and, and, you know, lots of things that a lot of people in the world don't have. And it's really hard for me um, to you know, just be a mom and just to be that um, day in and day out. And so I think it just makes it seem a lot more real when you think about, you know, how do people do this if they 
um, you know, if they don't have the resources to feed their child or if they've had to flee their homes because of violence or, or um, you know, if something else sort of catastrophic has happened. And so I think it, it just makes you kind of, it just puts things in perspective. And then, of course, you know, just thinking of your child being victimized in these different ways um, makes you more committed, I think, to protecting every child. Yeah. Badass work, Suzanne. Badass work. So, well, I mean, there's, there's a lot of good work going on out there. I know. There really is. There's so many people doing such amazing and positive things. And I feel really fortunate to be able to know quite a few and speak with quite a few. And it's it's inspiring, you know. There, there are mm-hmm. all of these really, really big, big problems. And so many people, they find their way in. And they do their work, mm-hmm. and it's it's encouraging. It's good that people mm-hmm. know about it. Yeah. So, how much time do you Definitely. have to be home? I will be home. Sure, about four months total. So I'm, you know, taking. I have some maternity leave, and then I'm taking some some unpaid leave to be able to stay home a little bit longer. Mm-hmm. And then what happens? What's your back to work plan? So we um, have found a small daycare facility in our neighborhood. So we're going to transition Jenna over there, but they in DC it's very competitive for daycare. Mm-hmm. So we did not get on the list early enough. So we have about two months of a gap um, before he can go to the daycare center. So um, we're going to either fill it with a good friend who um, has been a nanny in the past and he has some flexibility and or um, a combination of my mom and my husband's mom. So we'll, we'll kind of see how it plays out with schedules, but that way he'll be a little bit older when he goes to daycare and we can, um, you know, push him through the months of February and March when there's still probably quite a few cold and flu bugs lingering around. Um, and, and maybe he'll be, how home immune system will be a little bit stronger by the time he's around other little kids, but. Yeah. That's our plan, and then, um, you know, it'll be a little tricky because I'll go back to work right at the start of my team's busy season. We have a big um, advocacy day where we take people up on the hill to talk about these issues that will be happening um, about six weeks after I get back. And so I play a key role in planning that, and it was a really crazy time last year and just really long days. So I think it may be a little challenging, or definitely will be very challenging, I should say, yeah. um, to come back at that time mm-hmm. will you have the ability to I mean if you're putting in a really really long day will you be able to take breaks to to pump or for the baby to come in and see you or do you just have to be hardcore all day yeah I, I mean I'm very lucky I work in a very supportive environment um, and so I will be able to to pump at work and then, um, you know, be able to work from home some so that I can, you know, maybe pop over and, um, and see Jonah throughout the day if I'm home. Um, and then my husband and I plan to stagger our work schedules and we'll see how, you know, how busy my life is, but, um, you know, he'll go into work early and come home early and I'll go into work late and come home late. So I can drop Jonah off in the morning a little bit later and he can pick him up a little bit earlier, um, or take over for our moms or, or our friend who's going to be watching. So hopefully we'll be able to um, to spend as much time with Jonah as we can, when there's, especially those first few months yeah. um, when I go back. But it is it is sort of you know it's so hard to get out the door now. It's intimidating to think about how you'll be able to do it at once um, when you go back. And so we'll see. I mean, I'm sure it'll be trial and error. Yeah, 
but it sounds like you've got a pretty good um, network around you. You're, you sound, yeah, you sound, your, your back to work plan sounds real solid to me. <laughs> I hope so. I mean, it helps that I, I, my office here, which is, is not our headquarters, but it's, you know, about, um, it's, it's a good size. It's about 30 people and there's a lots of, lots of moms there and just a lot of people who are, um, if, you know, if they're not moms, they're definitely supportive of, of work-life balance and understanding how important family is. So, um, you know, I think, I think they'll definitely work with me and, and we'll, we'll see how it goes. Yeah. Well, good. I like the basic structure. It sounds really, really, yeah. really promising. Hopefully. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Yeah. So you you kind of mentioned the you know the work life balance thing and mm-hmm. just I know that before I had kids I was absolutely certain about so many things I mean just so many things I was mm-hmm. absolutely I was one of those people oh when I have kids I'll never or I'll always and I always figured that I'd be able to maintain you know a robust social life and give my all to my career and have a fulfilling marriage and find time to read novels and work out and home cook meals every night, everything. Right. I was so right. And then I had kids and I had to come up with, you know, some really different parameters for what it meant to have it all together to have, you know, the work-life balance thing. I I think I actually had to give up that idea, work-life balance, because it all Mm -hmm. just became sort of integrated. Um, did you have any, no pre-baby absolutes, or do you now? Um, well, I, 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 absolute might be a little extreme. I think, you know, I've definitely talked to my husband about being able to travel some. I think, you know, and I know that that's going to have to look very different than it has in the past. Um, but that's just something that I've always loved, and it's just been really integral to who I think I am. And being able to see and experience different places is just keeps me same, I think. Um, so that's something that I will want to be able to hold on to in some way. And I don't know how we're going to do that. Um, I know we're hoping and uh, before Jonah can crawl and it gets too mobile, we are hoping um, to go to the, the Philippines, which is where my husband's family is from. And um, his mom will go with us and we'll, you know, try to do it at a time when you can nurse the baby when the plane's taking off and pray that he doesn't cry the whole time. Um, But I think that that's one thing that I want to figure out how to do, even if it's on a really limited basis. Um, And, and then the other stuff, I don't know. I mean, I, I do worry, like I said, I worried about kind of losing who I am. And so I am a little, my friends are very important to me. And so I, I do worry about losing those relationships. A lot of them do have small children now. So, you know, maybe our social life just looks a little different. Mm-hmm. And I think one thing that's been really helpful is just, you know, the way we communicate now. I mean, I have friends in different places of the world, which has been really amazing when I'm up at 4 a.m. and it's a really lonely hour and I can get on WhatsApp and text one of my best friends who lives in London and has a four-month-old and can ask her questions about, you know, this rash on my kid's face. Um, So I think, you know, those kinds of things are helpful um, in that, you know, you're, you may not see people as much, but you may still be able to keep in touch. And, you know, I'm for, very fortunate to have um, friendships where even if I don't see people for long periods of time, it still feels the same when I do get that opportunity to see them. So hopefully that will, we'll be able to stick that out as well. And fortunately, I, I don't know, our, our house has never been clean and I have been relying on my husband to cook meals 
throughout the pregnancy and, and well, before that, honestly, too. So um, some of that stuff, I think, hopefully won't be too hard to let go of. I don't have any any illusions of having a, a life that looks perfect on the outside. No Pinterest has for you. <laughs> no, no, I, I yeah, you just, it, that's very intimidating to me. I tried to do a few of those things for our wedding, and it was uh, interesting at best. <laughs> <laughs> I can't do any of it. <laughs> no, yeah. no. Well, it sounds like you are figuring it out, and, you, and you've got a pretty good attitude about it. I like it. And it sounds like you and your husband are starting to figure out the balancing act, too, between childcare and household responsibilities and career responsibilities. Is anybody getting any sleep? Yeah, I mean, I... Yeah, go ahead, sorry. Anybody getting any sleep? Um, not a ton. I mean, uh, Jonas wanted to eat every two hours or so, so that's that's pretty rough. Um, but we're we're starting to figure out a schedule. And my mom was here last week, and so she would take a turn and you know started um, pumping. So that gives the opportunity for somebody else to take over for a while. So you know we're getting some you know piecing together five or six hours. Um, granted, hours might take place at two p.m. or something, but. Um, you know, kind of, kind of getting it to work out and we're, we're doing the best we can. I mean, it's definitely, you know, we're a little worse for the wear, um, yeah. than we listed out a month ago. So, um, it's, it's been a process, but hopefully, you know, as he gets a little older and, um, you know, I don't know, I know there are sleep regressions and all sorts of different things, but hopefully it'll be a little bit, a little bit longer stretches of sleep, uh, for him and for the rest of us as well. And eventually he is going to sleep. This doesn't last forever. It really does. That's what people tell me. <laughs> it really doesn't. It's hard to believe it at that moment. I know my, my yeah. second was uh, she just did not want to sleep alone. She didn't want to sleep for more than an hour and a half. She didn't want to. Basically, she wanted to, you know, be on someone's body until she was old enough to walk, practically. And I, I mm -hmm. remember somebody saying, just lighten up. She's not going to go to kindergarten like that. It's just for now. Right. It's only for now. Yeah. Yeah, but how long is now going to last? Yeah. It's just going to be for now, just for now. <laughs> All right. No, it's true. It's, it's, a friend of mine was saying today she's uh, she's going to have a baby in about a month now, and she said that, you know, it just goes so fast, and I know that, you know, it's you know, they change so quickly. And I said, yeah, well, I can say the first month doesn't feel like it went too fast. It just felt like one long, strange, sleepless night. So, um you know, maybe, maybe that's okay. I'm sure I'll, you know, look back in, in a year or so and really miss these days. But, um, but right now it does feel long. Well, the days that are coming up are actually even better and more exciting. And so, of course, you'll look back on these wistfully. There will be some nostalgia, but you're not going to want to go back to that because then the next thing that they do is so cool that, you mm -hmm. know, it's better than what they did yesterday. What they do today and what they'll do tomorrow is better. And it's, you know, that's, that's why look at it. forward. Yeah. Yeah, I can definitely see that. Yeah. So what parts of new motherhood are similar to what you've seen among women in developing countries and what parts are very different? Hmm, that's a good question. Um, I think... You know, I think the, the relationship and the bond and just sort of that very kind of, you know, primal, instinctual um, relationship between mother and child is the same. And I think that that urge to protect your child and give him or her every opportunity that you can, I think that that's, that's definitely universal. Um, and I think, you know, the differences that, are, that I've seen 
um, you know, of course, those are quite stark and just the resources and the time. And I mean, I think you know, we were very lucky to get lots of hand-me-downs and, and different things for Jonah, which is great. But we have a ridiculous number of swings and chairs and, and different sleeping devices that we've tried out. Um, and just, you know, kind of all of that, um, you know, all of those resources obviously are not going to be in, in different, uh, you know, developing situations. And so I just, you know, think about how, how other mothers would be able to cope if they don't have, you know, resources. Um, and then also, you know, I think I'm lucky to be in a, in a culture and an environment where, you know, I have a supportive um, you know, like the supportive and equitable gender roles. Uh, and I think, you know, sometimes that's, that's not always the case in, in developing countries. And then, you know, I'm just the very obvious, very obvious answers that, you know, we have resources at all beyond the chairs and all of those things. But, um, you know, being able to know that our water is clean and, and knowing that, you know, my house is safe and has a, a lock on the door and that there's not a war going on outside my window and those kinds of things. And I just, you know, I can't imagine there's enough to worry about and just, you know, keeping a kid alive and, and making sure that um, they have everything they need. And if, if you're in a situation where those aren't given, um, I, yeah, I, just, I can't imagine what that's like. I know. I can't imagine it fully either. Though you and I both mm -hmm. think about it, talk about it, write about it, research it, feel it on one level, but, you know, just like the realities of new motherhood, we don't get it. We don't fully get it because we're... Yeah, and I, yeah, and I think, you know, with maternal health, I think that's, that's also a really stark issue, which I know that you're very passionate about yeah, um, and very knowledgeable about, and I just think, you know... It, Throughout my pregnancy, yes, we had a couple of little scares that turned out to be fine. But, you know, you just, you wouldn't know if you didn't have access to an ultrasound. And then, you know, I, um, Jonah's heart stopped or at least decreased, the rate decreased quite intensely right before he was born. And, you know, if he hadn't had a monitor on and the doctor hadn't acted quickly, who knows what would have happened. Right. Um, and, you know, you just find out about there's all these different conditions that don't have any warning signs. And, if you were in a developing country and had no access to medical care, then, you know, your life and your child's life is at risk. And I think that that, that may be actually the most thing that the thing that hit me the most right now is just, um, just having worked on maternal health issues before and um, knowing some of the statistics, and, you know, when you're in a situation where you know that, you know, if you had been born in a different place or a different time, you or your child might not have made it. It's just, you know, really, really shocking to think about and really scary and just, yeah. you know, very upsetting that it's reality for most women in the world. Yeah. And it's humbling, you know, mm -hmm. those of us that Definitely. work in the field and those of us that have had children and survived and had really, really good care. You know, it's, it's, um, it's a humbling experience to be the ones who are afforded that in contrast to women who are just like us have the same physical and emotional needs, the same bonds with their children, goals and aspirations, and yet they have so little. And that's, mm -hmm. you know, that's in large part why both of us do the work we do and why, you know, yeah. no matter what way in a person finds, I think that for so many people, once there are children in their life, they're compelled to do something, you know, mm -hmm. there's a million ways to do it. No, 
Yeah, I think it's true. And, you know, my, when we were talking about different medical interventions, my husband would say things like, well, you know, we have these things now, but, you know, years ago, women died in childbirth. And I would always, like, jump at him and say, and they still do. Like, it's still, it's a huge problem. We're just lucky not to be in a place where that's as much of a problem. Yeah. I was um, talking last week with Chrisula about how the model of medical care in many developing countries where they're starting to accelerate their abilities to meet maternal health needs is um, actually kind of modeling after some of the United States' worst behaviors and practices. Mm -hmm. And um, we were talking about how so many healthcare facilities are now just going straight to a C-section. Um, mm -hmm. and, and there are a lot of logistical reasons, you know, because they can take care of potentially um, complicated situations on a day when the doctor is scheduled and by just doing a C-section, whereas the doctor might not be there the next day or, you know, so right. she and I were having this conversation about the prevalence of using C-sections in developing countries now and how it's beginning to develop into a problem. And then the next day I got this email from a woman um, who I don't know where she wrote me from, but her English, um, kind of suggests that she's from Africa and she was um, getting close to her due date and was really, really worried um, because she was planning on having health care for her delivery, but she wanted to make sure that um, she didn't have to go to the health care facility too soon because they would automatically do a C-section. And that is very similar to the letters that I get from American women. It's just... Mm -hmm. We all have the same issues. We just haven't quite figured out the model for appropriate care of women yet. We're working on it. Yeah, it's interesting. Yeah, it's interesting. And um, my my friend who's in, in London who had a baby just a few months ago, it, we were kind of comparing notes throughout. And it's just really different, just the, the much more medical interventions um, on the American side. And oh, just, yeah. um, you know, it was sort of shocking to see sort of what, she was offered and what I was offered and um, just, just also the attitude. I think someone explained to me once that in most places in the world, they think of childbirth as sort of, you know, a natural occurrence and, um, and, and something that's, that generally goes well. And of course, in a lot of places it doesn't and it's very shocking and terrifying, but um, you know, here it's, it's seen as like they're looking for every possible thing that could be wrong, which is, you know, good in some ways if you catch something that's, that's really important, but I think it's, it produces a lot more anxiety in mm -hmm. new mothers especially. Right. And oftentimes what happens is that they catch, you know, one thing that might be wrong and then they do two more tests to determine whether or not it's wrong and then those tests to lead to these things that could be wrong and then pretty soon you've got this domino effect of interventions that lead you to, you know, big interventions. And um, mm -hmm. that's where we stack up with problems in the United States is we go too far. We go too far, way too mm -hmm. far. Yeah. Yeah. Well, Suzanne, you and I have been talking for quite a while. And I know that baby is probably still hoping to see his mom soon. <laughs> but I want to ask you the final question that I ask everybody. Okay. Where are you in your life as a mom? I am trying to figure it out, um, and I think just trying to get through the day sort of in three-hour chunks at a time, um, but I'm, I'm excited and, and hopeful for the future and hoping that I can do the best that I can in this new role. Good answer. I like it. 
And you know what? I've been doing this parenting thing for quite a long time now. And I think that I'm still right where you are. I'm still figuring it out. <laughs> doing the best that I can to wow. So far, so good. They all turned out to be pretty good. Uh, yeah. 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 I'm sure, I'm sure you got it down. No. That's the thing. You don't. Because every day is a little <laughs> bit different. Every child's a little bit different. Life hands them different things, and you learn as you go. That's, yeah. Okay. It continues to be that way. Okay. Yeah. Well, Suzanne, thank you so much for joining us on the podcast. I really appreciate it. I love hearing about the work you do in the world and your fresh perspective on being a mom. Well, thank you so much for having me. Yeah, great. Well, we will talk again soon. Okay. Bye-bye. Mama said there'll be days like this. There'll be days like this. Mama said, Mama said, This week's guest was Suzanne Berman. You can learn more about Child Fund International at www.childfund.org. You can learn more about me at jeanfaulkner.com, and you can email me at jean at jeanfaulkner, tweet me at jeanfaulkner. Common Sense Pregnancy and Parenting is produced in Portland, Oregon by Alex Ward at Sounds Like Pictures Studios. Go pick up a copy of my book, Everywhere Books Are Sold, And don't forget to share this podcast, subscribe, donate if you can, and let's keep this conversation going, shall we? And don't forget to send me your ideas for what we should talk about in year two. And if you want a free copy of the book, email me, jean at jean faulkner, and put happy anniversary in the subject line. Talk to you next week, everybody. Bye-bye.